can't hear you very well. Hello? I think I'm losing you. Hello? Hello? Thank you to our AV team for that fantastic intro video. You don't know how many hours they put in to just a short clip. Thank you to them, and also thank you to our worship team for leading us in praise. Welcome back to our sermon series entitled The Answer. Entitled The Answer, today is a game of telephone. And so before we begin, let's invite God one more time through prayer. God, thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together and praise you as a church. We're grateful for all that you've done throughout this past week, leading us, and we're grateful that you're here with us today. So come, Lord, be here. Send your spirit to change us. Let this time be a time that refreshes and changes us and, be, and makes us closer to you. We ask this in your name. Amen. It's a game of telephone. It's a series with a phone theme, if you hadn't realized. And so it was fitting that the other day I got to talk to my best friend on the phone. Now that's a really, really big deal. Because unless you're my wife Carissa or my immediate family, I am pretty awful at picking up my phone. I'll let it ring and I'll let it ring. And by the time I get to my phone, the ringing has stopped. And so the problem is solved. I'm awful at picking up my phone. But what, this, what made this phone call so much more special is that my best friend is serving in the Air Force roughly 5,995.8 miles away from Pioneer Memorial Church. And this was the first time that we had talked in months. But we had a problem. We had a problem. The problem was that there was static in our conversation. Between him and us, the words that we were speaking, there was static that made it difficult to understand what we were talking about. Made it difficult for me to hear him and him to hear me. And this static was increasingly obnoxious in our phone call. It was increasingly obnoxious, cutting out the words ever so slightly as we continued talking. Because you see, my best friend works at the airbase's flight line repair shop. His job is to fix incredibly expensive, highly classified, sensitive jet engines for the Air Force's array of fighter jets. And around his repair shop where he works, electronic signals and cell phone service suddenly drops off due to intentional security measures. And so as my friend was walking to his workplace, the phone call got increasingly bad until it suddenly dropped. Conversation was done. End conversation. Signal interference. Interrupted message. Signal interference. Interrupted messages. They're the worst, aren't they? Like when you're using your GPS to find a really remote destination in Upper Michigan, and then all of a sudden, when you need the signal the most, it drops out. And you think to yourself, thanks, cell phone provider, you had one job. 
But interrupted messages impact other parts of your life. They impact other parts of our life, specifically our spiritual life. And I wonder, does it ever feel like your spiritual life gets hit with interrupted messages and intentional interference? Does it ever feel like those times when God has been talking to you about the next steps in your life, about where he wants to take you, about his leading in your life, you've been moving along, following his directions, and then all of a sudden it seems like the leading stops? Does it ever feel like you have times where you followed his lead by putting your relationships, your job, your family, your education, your perfectly laid out plans and the ever so reasonable and sensible options on hold because you've been following God's leading, but then suddenly that leading stops when it's least expected? The line goes dead, the message interrupted, end transmission. It seems like you're all alone and there's nothing on the other end. Does it ever feel like somewhere in between him and us, the message gets garbled so we can't understand what he wants for us? It leaves us with a feeling of crying out to God and saying, What's it, what, what do you actually want me to do? I'm here, I'm following but I can't understand what you want. I can't understand the message you're trying to get across to me. I, I'm, I'm here. Where are you? The question we're answering today is what happens to us when the signal gets dropped? What happens when the signal gets dropped? What happens when you're in the middle of deserted nowhere and God's directions suddenly stop? The Israelites... We're in the middle of deserted nowhere. Exodus 32 drops us into the middle of the story, right in the middle of the story. So open up your Bibles, your phones, whatever you're using to access the text. Let's get into Exodus 32 today. It's going to be on the screen as well. But Exodus 32 drops us into the middle of the story where the Israelites up until this point had been following a heavenly GPS with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And when that pillar of fire or cloud moved, Moses moved. And when Moses moved, Aaron moved. And when Aaron moved, the priests moved. And when the priests moved, the people moved. But suddenly, it had stopped. It had stopped moving in the middle of deserted nowhere. And so Moses stopped, and Aaron stopped, the priests stopped, and so the people stopped in the middle of deserted nowhere. But then Moses went away. Moses went away, and so he was, he was gone out of the picture. And then the pillar of cloud and the fire suddenly looked angry. It changed. It suddenly looked angry. And the feelings of loneliness crept in. The feelings of abandonedness crept in. The feelings of being stuck in the middle of nowhere with no directions crept in. Where was this God that had been leading Where was God? This was supposed to be an easy 11-day journey. We followed God, and now he's disappeared, and so has Moses. And so feeling alone, feeling alone and out of signal range, the Israelites pressed around the one leader they had left. They crowded around Aaron, and Exodus 32, verse 1, lets us know what they said. It says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, 
Make us gods who will go before us, because as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. We don't know what's happened to him. From the Red Sea crossing to making gods to follow, that seems like a pretty big U-turn. It seems like a pretty big detour. It seems like a pretty big turnaround from where they were going. But I think sometimes we judge the Israelites harder than we do ourselves. It's easier to critique their experience and their story than it is to critique our own experience and our own stories. But I think that this sudden departure from God following might begin to feel eerily similar to our own stories. Because you see, the Israelites were playing the first game of telephone. You you know the game. The game of telephone where someone starts the game by saying, Peso is the small dog that lives at my place. And then the word travels through person to person, down through the line, and it gets to the end person who wonders why Jeff Bezos wears small crocs in space. Israel was playing telephone with God. They were playing telephone with God because the messages between God and Israel were filtered through someone, an intermediary. They didn't come directly from God to the people, and that was a choice the people made. It was a choice that the people of Israel made to put some distance. Because, you see, Moses had gone up onto the mountain before. This wasn't the first time that Moses was on the mountain. He had done this before. The people weren't allowed to go up on the mountain. But God had designed it, he had intended it, that they would at least be able to hear the conversation, be part of the conversation, know what was going on, know that something was happening. And Exodus 20 gives us the people's response. Exodus 20, a couple chapters back, in verses 18 to 21, it tells us, When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself. We'll listen, but don't have God speak to us or we will die. But Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. The people said, no, no, no. We're going to keep this thing casual, all right? Moses, you go talk to God over there. We're going to stay here. We trust you, so you go talk to him, then talk to us. Be the intermediary here. Approaching God is just too scary. We cannot do it. We trust you. And it was in that small moment that a huge, pivotal relationship change occurred. When they said, we trust you, Moses, they put distance in between God and themselves. Rather than being a nation led by God through Moses, they became a nation that was led by Moses, who was led by God. Distance introduced. Distance introduced. Signal interrupted. The signal was interrupted. And so when Moses disappeared, it seemed like the signal was lost completely. The call had dropped out. There was no communication whatsoever. 
And so in the absence of God's directions, the noise could begin to be heard. The noise. You know the noise. You experience the noise. You live with the noise. It's the noise that surrounds you and follows you wherever you go, but you just can't quite put your finger on what that noise is. It's the noise inside your head and outside. It's that anxiety-inducing noise that never lets you rest. It's the constant attention grabbing noise of the world around you, the community around you, always trying to get a piece of your attention, constantly asking for you to look, focus, hone in right here. It was this noise, the noise of the community that crept in and became overwhelming, so overwhelming that even Aaron, the chief priest, caved to the pressure and forged a golden calf. The white noise, the static, the signal-interrupting static. Just like Aaron, you and I are bombarded with enormous amounts of static every single day. The reason is the modern mind is the most precious commodity there is. Every day, billions of dollars are spent on marketing and content creation, trying to get us to focus in to get our attention, to get us to spend our money, to get our our soul-concentrated focus. And it's our digitally connected lifestyles that only amplify this signal-crowding noise. Our ability to always be on call, to always be a phone call away, a text message away, only increases this static and noise in our life. The New York Times estimated, they estimated that the average person experiences and processes 34 gigabytes of data every single day. 34 gigabytes of data breaks down to nearly 100,000 words a day. And some of you are thinking, big whoop, I know somebody that talks 100,000 words a day. And if you don't, it's probably because you're that person. But put it into perspective, 34 gigabytes or 100,000 words a day are equivalent to five to seven hours of screen time every single day. Five to seven hours of screen time is what our brains have to process every single day. And by the way, that was in 2009, 12 years ago. 12 years ago, it was 34 gigabytes. 12 years later, we live in a place where it's not uncommon to stream music, work on project, answer emails, text your best friend, all while scrolling through Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. We live in a, in a world filled with digitally connected noise. And you have to almost be an expert multitasker to keep up with your own community, to keep up with the own no- your own noise in your own little bubble. But there's a guy named Daniel Levitin. He's a social researcher and author who's focused specifically in on this phenomenon of living in a digitally connected world and what it takes the brain to process all this information. And he wrote a book called The Organized Mind that gives some strategies on how to to cope and deal with this. 
And he writes specifically about multitasking. And he says this, asking the brain to shift attention from one activity to the other causes the prefrontal cortex and striatum to burn up oxygenated glucose. This is the, uh, the task-oriented part of your brain. The same fuel they need to stay on task. He continues and says, the kind of rapid, continual shifting we do with multitasking causes the brain to burn through fuel so quickly we feel exhausted and disoriented after even a short amount of time. Multitasking requires decision-making. Do I answer this text message or ignore it? How do I respond to this? How do I file this email? Do I continue what I'm working on now or take a break? And it turns out that decision-making is also very hard on your neural resources. Little decisions appear to take up as much energy as the big ones. And one of the first things we lose is impulse control. This rapidly spirals into a depleted state in which after making lots of insignificant decisions, we can, we can end up making truly bad decisions about something important. The bottom line, you and I are very bad at multitasking. And we multitask to manage the chaotic noise that surrounds us. But as we multitask, it drains us physically. And I have a sneaking suspicion. I have a sneaking suspicion it was this biological and physiological limitation, the attempt to multitask, that contributed, was a contributing factor to the golden calf experience that the Israelites had. It's my sneaking suspicion that this biological and physical limitation contributed to Israel's turning from the Red Sea miracle to asking for gods to go before them. Because by turning to one another, the noise was dialed up. By asking for direction from one another, they took it from 10 and cranked it up to 11. Crank it up as far as it goes. The noise of community was dialed up. And so feeling fearful and alone, the frenzy began until the noise got so loud and overwhelming, it crowded out every sense of rational impulse control. It crowded out every sense of rational thought. And it got so loud that it even began to crowd out the conversation God and Moses were having on the mountain. Exodus 32, verse 17, our scripture reading today says, When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There's the sound of war in the camp. But Moses replied, It's not the sound of victory, and it's not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. It was the noise. The noise that they were hearing was the sound of Israel trying to boost their signal reception. They were trying to boost their signal reception using ancient Egyptian religious traditions. The calf itself, the calf itself was viewed as a conduit to access God. It was viewed as a way that God would, would come and be part of the community and get directions by building this calf. It was, it was almost his, his seat, his throne that he could, he could sit on and talk to them from. They were trying to use ancient religious traditions to reestablish connection and communication with God, to boost the signal and hear what God was saying. It was the spiritual equivalent of standing next to the flagpole and holding up your phone as high as you can and shouting into it to try and get better signal. 
It never works, but we've all tried it. The Israelites, feeling alone, abandoned, and directionless, relied on pagan ritual to try and contact God. And it didn't work then. It didn't work out the way they thought it would. It didn't work. So we go back to our question. When the signal drops out, what should you and I do? When we've been following the directions of God and suddenly those directions stop, what should you and I do? When the storm in the middle of the storm, when the interference cranks up so loud that we can no longer hear God, what should you and I do? We're going to turn to the story of Michael Collins before we answer that question. Michael Collins, this week has been a, a, first, a, a list of firsts for space travel. I've always been a fan of space travel, and so we're going to throw it back to an old school astronaut. One of the first, Michael Collins, because he knew what it was like to have the signal drop out. Michael Collins was the third member of the Apollo 11 crew, alongside Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. Armstrong and Aldrin would become the first people to step on the moon's surface. But Collins' job was different. Michael Collins' role was uniquely different in that he would stay in the tiny command module that had been home to the astronauts for the past three days. His job was to stay in the command module alone and wait for his friends to return. He was the equivalent of the bus driver. All the kids got to go out and play, but he had to stay and wait, wait all alone. And so he waited. The astronauts blasted off in their lunar vehicle, and Collins waited in the command module in a silent but steady orbit around the moon, all by himself. His only connection in those moments to any form of humanity were brief radio transmissions to NASA in Houston, Texas. But even those were cut off. Even that signal dropped. Because you see in his silent orbit, silent but steady orbit around the moon's surface, the orbiter, the command module, and Michael Collins would slip behind the backside of the moon. And there on the backside of the moon, all signals dropped out. They call it the dark side of the moon. Only Michael Collins has seen the dark side of the moon. It was there that radio signals couldn't penetrate the moon's surface, and so they drop out, leaving Collins in complete aloneness. For 47 minutes in the eerie black darkness of space, there was complete silence. No contact, no signal, no messages to any other human being if something were to happen. There was no Houston, we have a problem. He was it. He was trained, but he was it, all alone. If there was a fire in the cabin, if the electric system failed, if the airlock had a leak, if the CO2 scrubbers stopped working, he was alone in the most inhospitable environment in the entire galaxy. And this is what he had to say about his experience. He said, it is there reinforced by the fact that radio contact with the earth abruptly cuts off at the instant I disappear behind the moon, I am alone now. 
truly alone and absolutely isolated from any known life. I am it. If a count were taken, the score would be three billion plus two on the other side of the moon and one plus God knows what on this side. So what did Michael Collins do when the signal cut out, when he found himself all alone? What did he do? I think the insight his story provides is that when the signal cut out, he moved closer to the signal. When the signal cut out, he moved closer to the signal because you see the tiny command module on its natural orbit would have 47 minutes before it would rotate back into signal range. Colin's sole job was to ensure that the command module stayed on its orbit, stayed the entire 47 minutes, stayed the course, remained on its orbit, and was reconnected with the signal. It was his sole job. And so while he waited, he described later in an interview that he thought of the celebrations with his family. He thought of the friends that were depending on him. He thought about what being back home would feel like. And so as soon as the orbiter popped around the other side of the moon, contact was restored. For us today, I think our answer should be similar. I think our answer should be similar for when, the, when it seems like the signal drops out completely. I suggest to you that you should move closer to the signal. When the directions stop, move closer to the source of directions. When the static interferes, move closer to the signal. When the voice of God can't be heard, when the messages get garbled in the noise of life, move away from the static and move closer to the signal. When the storm is raging, when the bills are piling up, when the worries and doubts press against you like a rogue wave in a tiny fishing boat on Lake Michigan, move closer to the signal so you can hear God's voice. Because when you're closer to the signal, you can hear God's voice. Worshiping as a church community is one way to move closer to that signal. Not because the community has every answer, not because your pastors have every answer, not because the church leaders have every answer, not because the people here in the pews have every answer, but worshiping as a church community moves us closer to the signal because God has blessed specifically the gathering of his church together. He's blessed the gathering of this community of believers. He's specifically blessed with the whole, he's specifically blessed with his presence. When we gather together as believers, we know that the Holy Spirit is here, right here. It's a promise from God that his very presence is with us when we gather together and worship. God's presence is here. The healing, empowering, saving, peacemaking, life-giving presence of God is right here. It's right here next to us and inside of us. The very presence of God, the God who cares about what goes on inside our head, the God who cares about the thoughts we have, the worries we have, the doubts and concerns we have is right here sitting next to you. When we worship together as a community, it's a signal booster. It boosts the signal 
We can better hear the reception. We can better hear the, the messages. Communal worship acts as a signal booster that you and I need, especially in times when it feels like the messages have stopped. We need it when the hard times come. We need it when it feels like the signal has dropped out completely. We need the worship together as a group. Check out this quote. It says, what is the object of assembling together? Is it to inform God, to instruct him by telling him all that we know in prayer? There's no answer to this here, but it's implied that the answer is no. No, that's not the object of assembling together. We meet together to edify one another by an interchange of thoughts and feelings, to gather strength and light and courage, by becoming acquainted with one another's hopes and aspirations, by our earnest, heartfelt prayers. Offered up in faith, we receive refreshment and vigor from the source of our strength. When's the last time that you shared your hopes and aspirations with your church family? We receive refreshment and vigor from the source, the very source of our strength. The truth is, worship isn't designed to change your circumstances. Worship is not designed to change the circumstances. It's not designed to change the storms that you're going through. Worship is not the simple magic push-button solution that you might be looking for. Worship doesn't change your circumstances. Worship changes you. Worship changes me. I need worship when the signal drops out. Because when the signal drops out, moving closer to God's voice is the only way to pick up on those messages. When the trials come, move closer to the voice of God through worship. When the miracles just aren't happening, share the heartaches and hopes you have with your grow group. When the life plan seems to be put on pause, pray with your house of prayer group. When the setbacks seem insurmountable, sing with your praise team. Sing your heart out. They sang their hearts out. Sing your heart out. When you don't know why your kid is acting out the way that, it, that your kid is, check into Sabbath school. And when the doubts, burdens, headaches, heartaches bear down on you and the storms rise up, squeezing you in the middle, come in for Sabbath worship. Come in for Sabbath morning worship because the God of the universe is here waiting to meet you. When the signal drops out, move closer to the signal. There's a secret. The secret of the story is this. The secret of the, of the golden calf experience is this, is that the conversation God and Moses was having, that conversation was all about how God could move closer to the Israelites. It was all about how he could be so close and personal in the middle of the Israelites that he could be a present, present reminder that he's right there, right there, right there in the tabernacle. The secret is this, is that in the middle of the storms, your God is working to move closer to you. So move closer to the signal. What cell service provider, when you don't have signal, moves their tower closer to you? Doesn't happen. 
Trust me, I've called. Move closer to the signal. When the signal cuts out, move closer to God in worship because you get a life-giving booster shot of God's strength, his peace, his rest, and his refreshment. And it only comes from him. The source of our strength. Move closer to the source of our strength. So I leave you with this. When the signal cuts out, move away from the static Move away from the chaos and move closer to the signal. I also encourage you that if you feel led to respond to anything that was said today, to go to pmchurch.org slash connect. pmchurch.org slash connect. There's responses right there. We're, used to, we're, we're, we're trained for this. We live in a digital world where you can tap like. We're trained for this. Respond as God's been leading you hit one of those responses there. If it's to be more involved with the church here, be more involved with worship here, if it's, be, it's to, to connect with a group, to connect with a, a prayer group, hit that response button. Or if it's to join us officially, maybe that's the answer. Hit, hit that button too. But I encourage you to respond because church isn't just about sitting. It's about being an active participant. Church life happens all throughout the week, not just here on Sabbath morning. Because the storms don't wait for us for Sabbath morning. The storms happen throughout the week. Move closer to the signal every day. Worship every day. Join us. Connect with us. Because when the signal drops out, move closer to that signal.